Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Scholars tell us it's very likely they were only in their mid-teens, maybe as young as 14 years of age. The nation that they were born into and the nation that they loved had been taken captive by a wicked and pagan ruler. Their beloved homeland laid in ruins, and only a few of the poor, the aged, and the infirmed stayed in the land. The year was 605 BC, and the nation of Judah, the capital city, Jerusalem, experienced the full trauma of war, including destruction, the loss of its greatest treasures, and the capture of their king and those who were being trained for future leadership. Among the Jewish youth that were taken hostage were Daniel and his three friends. Daniel chapter 1, that will be the focus of our discussion today. If you have your Bible, you may want to turn there, or you can find that on your phone or however you use the Word of God. We're going to take a break from Pastor Chad's sermon series, More Than a Story, for the next two weeks. And maybe you've heard of Daniel, uh, the guy in the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. You see, for the next 70 years, the people of Judah would live in Babylon in a constant state of upheaval under the control of this wicked and pagan empire. And along with hostages, some of the precious articles of the house of God had been taken from the temple and placed in the temple of Marduk, the king's god. (laughs) These holy furnishings were given by Solomon. He created them for the temple intended for worship to God alone. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. The Babylonian empire had grown so fast that they did not have enough educated young people uh, to run the government. So the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a great idea. His idea was to bring in uh, refugees to build up his kingdom The elite of Judah's young men were examined during a three-year process to see if they would be qualified to serve in the king's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's three-year training course for these gifted young men included immersion in the extremely difficult language and an introduction to Babylon's literature and learning. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. Then the king ordered Espenez, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. These teenagers, Daniel and his three friends, were to be educated in a highly sophisticated but deeply pagan culture. The indoctrination of these young men into Babylonian culture was by design. The king had a plan. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to simply educate them. He wanted to disengage them from their Jewish conditioning and transform them into full-fledged Babylonians. To accomplish this, Nebuchadnezzar did three things. First of all, he emasculated them. That just woke up some guys, didn't it? That was awkward, wasn't it? (laughs) Though the book of Daniel doesn't specifically say that Daniel and his three friends were made into eunuchs, very likely, scholars tell us, that since the man in charge of them was the chief of the eunuchs, the master of the eunuchs, eunuchs, very likely they were. You see, the dream of becoming a lover and a father to children were gone in an instant. Young men who were to serve the king in his court were only allowed one passion, and that is the king's wishes. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar obligated them. The king wanted them to get accustomed to the good things of the palace so they would never be satisfied to leave the king's court, making them dependent on the bounty of the king's buffet and drink would place them in a position of obligation and tie them into a lifestyle that only Nebuchadnezzar could provide. And then thirdly, he assimilated them. In order to assimilate them into this culture, Nebuchadnezzar commanded that the Hebrew names of these young men be replaced with various Babylonian gods. Verse 5 of Daniel chapter 1. The, kings assigned, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, again, wanted these young men to forget Jerusalem, to forget their God, to forget their temple, and everything related to their Jewish heritage and culture. But Daniel and his three friends did not forget. Take a moment and think about the tragedy of these events for these young teenagers. Everything in a moment changed for them. But again, what's interesting is Nebuchadnezzar could change their names and even try to change their passions. But this pagan king could not change their convictions. 
A study of Daniel is relevant for you and I today because it portrays a period of history that is much like the culture that we live in today. The study of Daniel um, is a study that we did back uh, on Wednesday nights a little bit ago, and a resource that I have used is from David Jeremiah. And David Jeremiah coined this statement, the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon has permeated our culture. Babylon fell more than five centuries before Christ, but its spirit has survived throughout world empires for the last several centuries. Babylon in the Bible is referred to more than 300 times, and often it's used as a symbol for ungodliness, sexual immorality, adultery, idolatry, and pride. We would probably all agree today that unfortunately, that in our country, the United States of America, the spirit of Babylon has been woven into our land, into our government, into our schools, and most sadly, into our homes. The spirit of Babylon, we refer that to this, humankind's attempt to usurp the authority of God. My way is better than God's way. My thinking is beyond God's thinking. My opinion is more important than God's. My standard, I create my own standard. I don't need a God in my life. John Underwood has said, civilizations do not give out, they give in. In a society where everything goes, eventually everything will. The spirit of Babylon. In the late 20th century, a theologian by the name of Francis Schaeffer, concerned about the increasing godlessness of Western culture, wrote a book called, How Should we then live. And in his book, Schaefer answered the question in this way. How should we then live? It is maintaining a conviction and a commitment to God's word as truth. It is a compassion for a culture that is lost and dying without the gospel. It is a commitment to the costly practice of truth in the midst of the intellectual, moral, and philosophical battles of our day. It is living in the power and reality of the God who is there, bearing the witness of his truth across the full spectrum of life and culture. Right before our very eyes, in 2016, we are seeing the growing disintegration and decline of truth and morality throughout our land. And we must ask ourselves, like Daniel had to ask himself, how then should we live? How then should we live? I try. <laughs> I really do try. I, I try and ask God, you know what, God? I'm speaking on July the 17th. 
give me a word that is encouraging, that's affirming, that's going to be fun and, and, and a blessing to the church. And we have to talk about how should we then live. Every time I hit this platform, there's not a doubt in my mind or in my heart what needs to be shared today. And so let me ask you this. How do you answer this question? How should we then live? We must answer the question, how should we then live? Daniel and his friends did not necessarily change their culture, but they did prevent their own fall into compromise that would have swept them into a sin, into sin along with Babylon. Standing up to their faith, up for their faith, was not easy. Daniel and his friends did not merely just survive in Babylon. Guess what? They thrived. Why? It took enormous conviction and commitment. And that's what it will take for us today to remain faithful to God in an increasingly godless society that is bent on following the spirit of Babylon. It will take conviction, that's our subject today, and it will take commitment, our subject next week. How should we then live? Daniel chapter one, let's check out verse eight. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Did you see it? Probably one of the most powerful statements in all of the Bible, tucked away in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 8, that first statement. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Would it be amazing that there'd be a generation of students in America who would say to themselves, who would say to their peers, who would say to their God, we refuse to defile ourselves before God. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a generation of parents in 2016 in our land who would say to their kids, family, we will not defile ourselves before our God. Wouldn't it be amazing if the rest of us would determine within our heart and within our mind, we would not defile ourselves before God. In the heart and mind of Daniel and his friends was a deep, deep, deep conviction to God and his truth. These were the internal values that they held dear in their heart. These convictions were foundational in their lives for every day in which, remember, they lived in Babylon. Conviction. How do you define conviction? What is a conviction? Very simply, it's an unwavering standard. My daughter, um, for Father's Day, uh, got me a um, French press coffee maker. Um, you know what that is? Okay, you're all, woohoo, okay. And uh, 
my favorite color is orange, and it's orange. <laughs> I mean, it's really cool. So since Father's Day, every day I've been making this French press coffee. Man, it's strong stuff, and it keeps me going to about 9.30 a.m., you know, and it's really... And so every morning I get up, and I watch a YouTube video on how to make it just right. And so um, I get my tablespoon, and I get four tablespoons of coffee, put it in there, boiling water, and then you press it, you know, and uh, it's really kind of fun, too. And uh, every morning when I do that, when I get that tablespoon out, I don't question whether or not that's a tablespoon. A tablespoon is a tablespoon. But why in our culture today do we question God's truth? God's truth is God's truth. It is an unwavering standard. A conviction is a committed value, a foundational principle. It is the truth. And so how were Daniel and his friends, how were they able to stay committed to God and view themselves in a foreign and pagan culture? Convictions. Where did they get that internal reservoir of strength that caused them to live their lives before God? Conviction. What kept the fire from burning up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3? And what kept the mouths of the lions shut for Daniel in chapter 6? It was the hand of God, but it was because these dudes lived with conviction. Early in their training, Daniel and his friends, they were confronted with the temptation to give in, to compromise their convictions. The first test was the food and wine from the king's table that was set before them. To consume that food and wine would be wrong for them for two reasons. One, first, many of the foods would have not met the health and the standards of the Jewish law at that time. So that was a no. Secondly, much of the food and drink had almost certainly been previously dedicated as an offering to a false god or to an idol. And for them, that was a conviction, we're not going to eat that food or drink that wine. So at some point, these four young men said to themselves in a staff meeting, we're going to forgo the home country town buffet food. Well, maybe not. <laughs> okay. And we are not going to compromise the standard that we believe God has set up for us. They were driven by their convictions. It was a critical decision. David Jeremiah even states that had Daniel specifically compromised his convictions, the book of Daniel might never have been written. Ladies and gentlemen, this confirms how important it is that we live with convictions. I was raised in a home where mom and dad had convictions. <laughs> and as a young man, as a teenager, I wasn't real thrilled about that. Crying out loud, really? But if you ask my younger sister and my younger brother today, what we respect most about our parents is they never, ever wavered on their convictions. They were never wishy-washy. They were never, it was never gray for them. They lived by their convictions. For example, some of the convictions they lived by in our home was this one, dad is the boss. 
That shocks some people today. Either the first service were a little droopy or they didn't agree. But in our home, dad was, the, you know, we all have a boss in our lives, right? We're all uh, accountable to somebody. And if at any time in history do kids need to be accountable to somebody, it's today. And dads, it starts with you. And if you're a single mom, mom, you pick up the slack and you do it as well. Here's the problem today. Too many kids are the boss and parents are following after them. (laughs) Secondly, a conviction in our home was you respect your mother. You talk bad about mom, I'm coming after you, my dad said. And so 18 years of my life, there was no talking about bad about, and we didn't need to, really. My mom is amazing, was amazing. Thirdly, a conviction in our home was you respect authority. Every year, from kindergarten, this is not an exaggeration, from kindergarten to my senior year in high school, every year, My dad was a man. He was courageous. He was bold. He walked into parent-teacher conferences every year, and he would say to my teachers, now, before seventh grade, I was Billy. After seventh grade, I became Bill. (laughs) And he would say, if Billy causes you any problems, you let me know, and I'll take care of it at home. By the way, Billy never caused any problems, okay? (laughs) Every year, you respect authority. Another conviction was, you don't have a sloppy mouth. We don't use those words in this home. We don't talk that way. In fact, if the TV talked that way, we had to shut it off. (laughs) I mean, that was aggravating. But again, you ask my brother and my sister, What we appreciate about my parents is because they had a conviction and they stood to it. Another conviction was church is a priority. You know what? There's a lot of good things out there, but church is a priority. When the doors are open, you're there, you're in class, you're learning. Everything else takes a second second priority. (laughs) Another conviction was you get a job. (laughs) So I knew ever since I was a little kid, When I graduated from high school, I better have a plan for my life because I wasn't going to sit around at home and hang out and just hang out with with my parents until I figured it out. Convictions. Consider the fact that Daniel and his friends were teenagers with no parents and no family around to help them during this season of their lives. Yet their love for God and his truth learned as children so filled their lives that they never lost their desire to serve the Lord. What are your convictions? And parents, what kind of convictions are you teaching your children? Today, there are two convictions. There's really 22 I'd like to talk with you about, but we only have time for two. Two convictions we must hold true to so we can thrive today in our culture. These two convictions will transform our lives and help us to answer the question, how should we then live? Conviction number one is this. 
know your identity. Needless to say, our culture today has an identity crisis. One of Satan's greatest strategies is identity theft. Satan steals our identity by reminding us of our pain, our brokenness, and our disappointment. And he takes that pain and brings confusion and begins to paint a picture in our minds of who we are not. And unfortunately, many of us choose to believe it. David and Jason Benham are twin brothers. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but um, they were contracted with HGTV to do uh, one of their shows. And they had recorded three shows, and some of the promoters of HGTV, the ones who are pouring in the cash to HGTV, um, found out about some of the standards that these twin brothers live by and some of the stands they had taken in the past, much uh, like um, gay marriage and, um, and abortion. And so when the uh, promoters heard about this, they pulled their show and canceled it completely. And so David and Jason Benham have written a book. It's called Living Among Lions. And some of my thoughts today are from uh, their book as well. And these twin brothers say this. Both God and Satan want to strip you of your identity, but God wants to replace it with himself, while Satan just wants to leave you empty. Here's what we have to do. We need to learn what God's word has to say about who we are in him. Once we learn it, then we accept it, and then we apply it to our lives, and day by day, we live by that truth and by that knowledge. God tells us in his word that we are chosen, that we are holy, that we are blameless, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, that we are sealed, that we are loved, that we are fearfully and wonderfully and carefully made by him, and that God has a divine plan and purpose for all of our lives. And then the enemy, he knows the truth of that. He knows the power of that. When you and I grab a hold of it because it can change our lives, the enemy then comes in and tries to give us another lie, another line. But you see, the enemy has little chance of bringing long-term discouragement and defeat to those who know their identity in Christ. Amen. Intimacy, intimacy with God will help us deal with our identity crisis. What produces intimacy? Knowing someone. You spend time with them. You develop a relationship with them. We cannot be close with someone we do not know. And how do we get to know God? Well, if you remember a couple months ago, the room in the basement with orange carpet, that's where it all starts. We have to have a daily, ongoing connection with God. We meet him in his word. Intimacy with God is based on meeting him in his word, spirit to spirit. 
We read, we receive. We read again, we receive. He influences, he influences us to believe. We read and believe, and then what he does, he renews our mind. He changes our thinking as we adopt and as we live by the principles in his word. We don't read it like the sports page to get some stats and to uh, get some highlights. We don't read it to gain a bit of knowledge so we can nail somebody with it. We read to receive. We read to be changed. This must be a conviction. And, and here's what happens. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And when your mind is renewed, you get it. You get who you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. We read God's word to have our minds transformed, which will help us discover our identity. This must be a conviction. Our identity comes first from knowing who God is, then from knowing who we are in relation to him. My wife and I met when we were freshmen in college. I've known my wife 36 years. When my wife was 12 years old, her father passed away. Alive one day, gone the next. He died of a heart attack at 41 years of age. My wife, the oldest of three girls, uh, she was daddy's little girl. And just like that, he was gone. 12 years of age. My wife had to deal with that terrible loss. There was a friend who invited her to church. A great church much like this church. And in this church, she found out how she could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And she began to grow in that knowledge. And she allowed the word of God to change and influence her life. She discovered her identity in Christ. 36 years of knowing my wife. Yes, she mourned. You bet she grieved. Yes, she had some questions. But in 36 years of knowing my wife, the loss of her father has never tripped her up in relation to her walk with God because she learned and understood her identity in Jesus Christ. And the best part of the whole thing is God brought her the man of her dreams. Without a, deep, without a deep and compelling sense of our true identity, it will be impossible for you and I to survive this culture. We must know who we are in Jesus Christ. Daniel and his friends did not need a king to determine who they were. They had possession of their identity, and they guarded it with their lives, even to the point we'll read here in a minute of eating veggies and drinking water for 10 days. David and Jason Benham say this, knowing our true identity breeds conviction, and conviction fuels our actions. We need a culture in the church who can walk 
confidently, courageously, in this culture today, knowing who they are in Jesus Christ. Conviction number two, establish a biblical worldview. For Daniel and his friends, the world was not ruled by Nebuchadnezzar and centered in Babylon. Not at all. They understood that the world was ruled by God and centered on his kingdom. In fact, the theme of the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty. There is a God, and he's in charge of the world. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. They got that. They understood that. When everything was literally taken away from them, it did not change their identity or change their perspective about the truth of God. Their convictions remained constant and consistent no matter what was taking place in their lives. Daniel maintained his conviction. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That was his conviction. Despite judgment, changing circumstances, their God was still their God. Babylon's dominion did not change a thing for them in their heart or in their mind. You see, genuine Christianity is adopting God's view and realizing it as truth. This is a biblical worldview. In other words, God's perspective should be our perspective. It doesn't matter what CNN says. It does not matter what Entertainment Tonight says. It doesn't even matter what the political candidates say. Amen? Amen. What does God's truth say? This is the worldview that we must adopt. Christianity is not just one compartment of our lives. It is our lives. That is a worldview. This must be a conviction. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. When literally everything was taken away from them, these four young men in the book of Daniel maintained their worldview. They maintained their biblical perspective. When living in a foreign land that worshiped false gods under the rule of a pagan king, was God still sovereign? Yes, he was. Was it possible to maintain their worldview and be faithful even in Babylon? Absolutely. Our worldview must, it must remain constant and consistent no matter what takes place in November. No matter what takes place in our world, our worldview will not change. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this. This is a very, very, very powerful Reminder, see to it, he says, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Oh my goodness, all over the place. Which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The key word in this passage is the word captive. Don't be taken captive. We are to give allegiance first to Christ by allowing his truth and his character to dominate all allegiances. This must be our conviction. Therefore, to be captive of something other than Jesus Christ is wrong. It is sin. 
you're on a bad direction. Christianity isn't just a religion or another belief system. It is a comprehensive worldview that has all the answers to life's questions. It must be our conviction that nothing, absolutely nothing, takes us captive except the truth of God's word. This is reality. We cannot afford to be wishy-washy, lukewarm, gray, or straddling the fence. If you straddle the fence, you will tear the seat of your pants. Now, hang on. That's not mine. I have to give credit. I wish that was mine, though. That's the Benham brothers that I mentioned to you a little bit ago. So, the rest of the story, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel's refusal to follow the instructions of the king placed him and his friends in jeopardy. You bet it did. However, Daniel was courteous and respectful to the official when standing up for his convictions. If you know the story, Daniel made a deal with the official. For 10 days, Daniel and his three friends ate nothing but vegetables and drank water. After 10 days, they were compared with the rest of the dudes who ate from the king's table. Look what happened. Chapter 1, verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom." I'm going to go home and eat me some veggies today. (laughs) You see, David Jeremiah says this, that Daniel's story reads much like a modern-day rags-to-riches story. From his lowly position as a captive, Daniel, as you read through the book, was promoted again and again. Nebuchadnezzar even made Daniel a chief official in the province of Babylon, a chief administrator over all the empire's leading men. (laughs) It's likely that Daniel, because of his convictions, he ruled under 13 kings and was a part of four different kingdoms in his lifetime. The last verse of Daniel in chapter 1 would be beautiful it is beautiful when you understand the big picture here. Look at Daniel 1:21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, what's so beautiful about that? What's beautiful about that is Daniel was still hanging around when all the other kings and kingdoms disappeared. He was, he was still uh, uh, living by convictions. Daniel lived to see Cyrus, who was the Persian leader conquer this wicked empire in 539 B.C., some 66 years after Daniel was taken captive. By this point, Daniel had to be about in his 80s and had lived a godly life 
in the public eye of a wicked and pagan society for over 70 years. He outlasted some of the most powerful kings the world has ever seen. And for all the miracles God performed through and for Daniel, like Daniel in the lion's den, it's important to note that he never delivered Daniel from Babylon. Daniel lived nearly his entire life as a hostage, in exile, in a foreign land. So the message of the book of Daniel, the message of Daniel's life is not that God will always remove all forms of oppression in our lives. Instead, this account serves as a promise from God that God will bring success and remain faithful to him, to us, even in the most trying circumstances. Daniel lived in a culture that was utterly pagan, yet throughout scripture, there isn't even a negative word about him. When the leaders of Babylon tried to uncover some fault in his life, they found nothing worthy except his faith in God. Why? Because he lived with convictions. And he stayed and stood and refused not to defile himself and still stands as a living example for you and I today, thousands of years later. How should we then live? You know the answer to the question with convictions. We've got to live with convictions. That's how we answer that question. Would you stand with me today, please? It wasn't until 6.15 this morning on my screened-in patio, drinking my French press coffee, that I knew how to close this service. Please bear with me today. I think it's important for us to do a couple of things before we leave. If you're comfortable with me, would you take your hands and place them over your heart? And let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for this story of Daniel. Thank you that years later, thousands of years later, we learn, we can gain, we can receive the truth from this story. So God, I pray that Daniel's life, his testimony, will, not, will do more than just inspire us, but change us. Change us, God, by first of all, changing our hearts. Help us to develop convictions. May that be our passion, our heart, as we determine how we should then live. And now, church, let's do something else. Would you just put your hands on your head? <laughs> and let's keep praying, okay? And so, God, I pray for our minds. God, where the enemy is trying to come in and bring confusion to our minds, we ask, God, that we would stand on the authority of your word and declare that we have been made right before a holy God. God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Our identity is in him, not in how we think, not how we feel, or what 
the media tells us. And so God, protect our minds. Help us, Lord God, to help our kids to protect their minds and our students to protect our minds. I pray, God, that you would help us to know the power of your word and how the power of your word can bring life change to us. So God, we commit ourselves to you. Help us, help us to answer the question, how should we then live? By living with convictions, I pray. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said amen Amen. and amen.